Welcome to the July 28th, 2006 edition of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. It's 4.04 on this Friday afternoon. We have got a great show today. Does HIV really cause AIDS? From looking at most mainstream news sources, you wouldn't know that several top-level scientists are asking that question. You also wouldn't know that much higher AIDS rates in Africa are highly questionable numbers. You also wouldn't know that the notion in the U.S. of AIDS becoming widespread through heterosexual activity was a fallacious notion that was disseminated for other than scientific reasons. You also may not know that AIDS treatments consist of some of the most highly toxic and highly profitable drugs used on humans. You would be aware of all of this if you'd been following the reporting of Celia Farber. This courageous journalist is our special guest today. We will be discussing her shocking new book, Serious Adverse Events, An Uncensored History of AIDS. In it, Farber slams the AIDS industry for often bypassing science, ethics, and saving human lives in favor of profits, political agendas, and dogma. We'll uh, be talking to her in just a minute. I'll remind you first that the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. Celia, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Yes, I've been working my way through this book, and it is uh, it is quite a read and quite provocative. And I um, was had some familiarity with your work. I had read some of your stuff back in Spin about 20 years ago, Spin Magazine. Yeah, you mentioned that. That's very <laughs> impressive. <laughs> and it, it, a column there called uh, Words from the Front that ran for about seven years. And I was just like sort of, wow, we're somehow going down this rabbit hole of what AIDS is about, and it's uh, there's a lot of questions there that, that aren't really being addressed in the mainstream media. And, and then I kind of... Uh, I didn't think a lot about the subject for years, and um, recently your publisher uh, at Melville House uh, said, hey, take a look at this book, and I was like, oh, yeah, I remember her, and so I'm glad to see you've been doing this work all these years. And uh, Yes, uh, it's, it's, it's great to hear uh, stories like that because I'm, this whole dialectic has always been, has been cast in an extremely negative light, to say the least, and it is it is equated with the the, the most degraded kind of paranoia, like anti-government, anti-reflexive paranoia. Oh, those people who think HIV doesn't even cause AIDS, but but in fact, what you're what you're talking about is is a kind of synthesis between people looking around and seeing, you know, remembering what they heard, remembering the propaganda, having lived through it looking out at the world and not seeing anything even remotely comparable to it and then sort of joining that with something they read perhaps 20 years ago and something they read maybe the other day. So th that, that's the wonderful thing about about reality is that it, it always wins out in the end. You know? In other words, there's no extreme point of view that anybody's peddling or pushing. It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very deep and complex dialectic that's been growing uh, to I would say elephantine proportions over the last 20 years and I'm I am uh, for a number of reasons I wound up being the the the, the sort of um, mule reporter just 
following it, following it, following it. It does fascinate me, but it's 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 very hard work. And looking back now over the last twenty years, I can I can I can I, I sometimes ask myself, well, if you were, you know, if you had a daughter or a son or so, a break or a friend breaking into journalism, would you advise them to? Uh, to touch this story, and there's a big part of me that says no. I would tell them to not touch it with a barge pole. But now I just opened up a huge can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what I want to say is what I get from your work is that what you're doing is you're just practicing real journalism, and and practicing real journalism, it, as strange as that sounds, is almost like a. Uh, an extreme act. Well, yes, yeah, thank you. You 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 put it much more. Cons- that's what I. That's exactly what I was getting at. You're, you're so right. We've gone so far off some often to these bizarre interpretations of this story. You're exactly right. It is the mo- it, what we what my, I and, and many others have done is the most straightforward reportage, and it is it is a it is it is a war. It is a, uh, a scientific, epidemiological, cultural, social war between two very polarized sides and in any other war of any kind nobody is expected to pretend that one side does not exist and that's what offends me the most if if people would like to say i think that the those scientists who have argued that hiv doesn't cause aids or doesn't cause aids alone i think they're wrong that's fine but we've we've also spent more than 15 years with a media that uh, that would like us to believe that those people do not even exist. So that's been the, that's been the the the, um, the propagandistic cry. You know, oh, there's a, the, a hundred different ways to say small, to say marginal, to say insignificant, <laughs> tiny, fringe. None of those things are true. It's it's a formidable and ever growing body of international scientists, numbering now. Well, numbers are dangerous because um, I could, I could, I mean, I could tell you there are 2,400 people who have signed on to the um, the actual position formally that uh, they would like the question reopened. Those include two Nobel laureates, countless PhDs, countless MDs, and also a number of um, uh, journalists, uh, writers, citizens, civilians, and and. Uh, the, the astonishing thing is that one has to work so hard to to just say that in the mainstream media. We uh, just just to say there is another side, and and that side has organized itself into a very uh, cogent and and highly vocal you know, body of dissent. Right at right at the moment in history when 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 we decry censorship, when we decry uh, silencing and and um, government interference in in what Americans are permitted to know and so forth, this one is totally different. You'll get people on the far left who will who will. Um, possibly even have spent their whole lives fighting for freedom of speech and freedom of expression, but this they want to silence. Yeah, I, I know. It's it's very troubling. And I, I getting back to what I said about what you're practicing real journalism, it's it, what back in the day, in the 80s when this started, that it, it, there seemed to be this thing forming where there was an, a, a juggernaut of opinion, but a lot of it was being created by 
huge institutions, the drug industry being one of them, and that this is how it has to go. And and if you reported outside of that, which you did, and and one of the main people in those days was Peter Duisberg. If you did that, you just became so marginalized. But but if you're practicing real journalism, you have to do that. And and and, and again, I commend you for that. So can we go into the story of Peter Duisberg because he was the first main. Uh, person that questioned the HIV causes AIDS hypothesis, and, and it's a tragic story. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, it is a tragic story, and it's one of those stories where the story of one person, in this case, of, uh, well, in one man can can shine light or cast light on a whole society. What happens to this one man? And I've always been fascinated by him as a lens through which to see the entirety of AIDS and the and the culture of AIDS that we've had for 25 years now. Peter Duisberg was, <clears throat> uh, he came over from Germany from the Max Planck Institute and was sort of handpicked to be and was among the, the absolute elite of a um, the, the then young generation of burgeoning retrovirologists. And retrovirology was the shining new field in the 1970s. Uh, the paradigm that these guys came up through was that, that viruses cause, would be shown to cause cancer. Uh, and, uh, and that was what the AIDS, uh, what the, what the AIDS debacle and disaster came out of. It came out of the viral cancer program. But we'll leave that aside for now. Duisburg, to put it very simply, was at the absolute top of his field, the field of retrovirology, when in 19... And when I say top, I mean he was... He, was, uh, he would have... All, all fair people say he would have gotten the Nobel Prize for his discovery of oncogenes if it hadn't been for the fact that he was so... He, he, he's actually done this once before. He made a, an incredibly important discovery... Um, but he tested it a little too rigorously and found that it was uh, it was not all it was cracked up to be and said so and therefore he and his partner lost their shot at the Nobel Prize and that partner has not spoken to him I've heard in 25 years. No. So <laughs> uh, he then goes on merrily along his way and is asked to write a paper about retroviruses as causes of cancer in a journal called Cancer Research. This was in 1987. In the final portion of this paper, he writes a section that addresses HIV as the cause of AIDS and comes to the conclusion, as one of the country's foremost retrovirologists, that HIV, like all retroviruses, is harmless and therefore cannot cause any disease, much less a devastating illness of, of the cellular system, such as AIDS. Uh, so he, he, he I, you know, I'm, I'm obviously simplifying this, but he puts this in the paper, on, kind of unaware that there would be any problem with this. I mean, he was invited and asked to address this. The paper comes out, and uh, it, it was like he signed his, his, his death warrant. I mean, they took him right out. They snuffed his, when I say they, I mean the federal government, the NIH, snuffed his funding instantly. Uh, it took a few years before that snuffing of the funding was, was felt by Duisburg because he had such a, uh, an elite grant that it lasted for several years after they pulled the plug. 
so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, he was defunded. He was uh, uh, totally ostracized. He was exiled, I mean, banished, disinvited from conferences, banned from the scientific literature. It was really an extreme, the kind of thing you read about from you know, the former Soviet Union. I mean, he was just made into what, what, what Orwell in 1984 called an unperson. You know, he just couldn't publish, exist, be. Uh, his name was absolutely, absolutely radioactive. And the, uh, he became a, a, an irritant to the to the AIDS research industry, to the to, to and I think that that's what's been driving the dynamic all these years is that I, I almost think if H, if Duisburg hadn't existed, if they hadn't been so hell bent on destroying him and proving taking him out, proving him wrong, there might have been a slightly more relaxed atmosphere around this question, which instead is charged to the point of madness. I mean, it's you get the feeling that people would practically kill each other over this question and a lot of that rage is 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 rage around peter duisburg who um has the effect of a i i think there's a certain amount of it's almost like stuff that you rec- that i recognize from childhood um uh what am i thinking of you know fables and stories about that character who who comes in and and says something like like in the voice of a child so simple so true uh, well okay i should stay away from saying so true <laughs> but so simple and so stark and so clear and it drives everybody deranged anyway so duisburg over the next 10 years was 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 just hanging by a thread struggling for his survival um moved to ever smaller laboratories um you know just this pogrom goes on and eventually he is invited back to his native country germany and the uh cancer establishment there recognized that what was happening was that one of the world's most valuable cancer researchers was being you know beaten to within an inch of his life and they they wanted him to get back to work on cancer so they put him in a safe environment in which to do so in Mannheim Mannheim Germany he divided his time between Mannheim and Berkeley over a period of about 6 years during which time he formalized a new theory of cancer which we could devote a whole program to, but suffice to say, uh, those who don't hate Duisburg, who can be fair about him, and those who are cancer research watchers, they say, and they said to me, and, and this is in my book in Chapter 1 called The Passion of Peter Duisburg, they said that this is quite possibly the uh, the missing piece for the genetic basis for cancer that Duisburg came up with during those years at Mannheim. Um, so now we have a very uh, <laughs> loaded and, and dramatic sort of Shakespearean denouement situation. Will Duisburg be able to come back um, as a scientist and apply himself where he's clearly could play such an invaluable role in cancer research or uh, is he? It, it does, is the AIDS establishment so powerful that he will never again be any kind of scientist in any field? And that was the tension that I. That's why I, I entered the story about three years ago, that wound up uh, uh, being a story. Being a story published in Harper's Magazine, turned into a very different story. 
uh, it was going to be all about Peter Duisburg, but in the end he was only the final third of the story that really addressed the overall, uh, just uh, the very sick climate of NIH-based science, yeah. which is extremely punitive. I, I, I think I would use the word fascist, really. Well, yeah, and I, I don't disagree with that, and you also used the word pogrom, and from reading your book and other things that I've, I've come across, it, and you look at the story of many characters, but especially of Duisburg, there, there's this thing of, it, here is what we believe, and uh, if you want to do, it doesn't matter how real the science is that you're practicing, it has to fall within this. I mean, and, and, and it's like dogma, and these it's supposed to be science, and it's, just, it's very frightening. It is very frightening, and I, I, I still don't understand it. I don't understand why science in America is, well, I, I think that the, the first thing that most... I do understand it. I do finally understand it. I have, I've been loath to accept this answer for all these years. But really the first thing to bring up is money, 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 industry. This, this is not, as Marcia Angel said in her book, this is not big money, large money. It's colossal financial interest, the pharmaceutical octopus <laughs> stretches around the world. So I've been like a fool uh, all these years wondering, why are they behaving like this? You know, And it, it is finally dawning on me that people really are motivated by money. That's not the only motivation. And I always sort of, I tend to jump very quickly to the more um, things that have more to do with the human, the human psyche. And there is something in this whole AIDS paradigm that uh, unfortunately is a religion. It's a, it's it's so. In other words, you can't get at it. It's so irrational. You can never get at what it is that people that is motivating people and driving them to these extreme behaviors. Yeah. Well, I you know the money. I think you're right on target there, and I think there's there's fear is a big thing in this, and and there's it's a, a lot of ways we could look at that, and and I think actually the this weird obsession with money and power there's often fear underneath that that's kind of complicated but i want to say okay so uh dr peter duisberg this top level scientist you know you, you mentioned all his credentials there and, and he he just by questioning the notion that hiv causes aids and actually you know by looking at things in a scientific manner he got so uh, you know just ostracized and, and worse than yeah, that and absolutely. and and the thing is uh, um I, what I want to try to understand here is the notion that HIV causes AIDS, that the drug industry is 100% behind that. Now, that would be the cynical view of that would be, or maybe the quite accurate view, is that uh, if you have a specific pathogen that you can say causes the disease, then you can develop very specific drugs that you can patent and make a lot of money with. Bingo, yes. <laughs> You're exactly right. Again, <laughs> uh, and this is very a very important thing to, to understand. Without that single pathogen, look look what sprang from that single pathogen. Um, the HIV test, or I should say tests, plural, alone. I mean, colossal industries. Uh, the drugs obviously aimed. I mean, of which there are, I believe, thir last I checked, there were 26, but then there were four more. So around 30. 
pharmaceutical drugs targeted directly to HIV and its and its mechanisms and activities or putative ones anyway. So now we have the tests, we have the drugs, we have tens of thousands of AIDS service organizations and charities in this country alone. In Britain at one point there was one charity for every AIDS case. So that's another industry. You know, and it just goes on and on. And, and I think the thing that's hardest to break is the fact that these, this, I, I use the word octopus, you know, it all formed this, or, or maybe more like a matrix around the world. The hardest thing to get at is the power that came with um, this belief system, this in, these, in, these interlocking industries, having the power to tell people they were doomed to die, to tell people they could be saved, however, if they went into this, these tunnels, you know, this net, this, this salvation, the drugs, etc. Right. All of that stuff, I mean, it, it, it really warped people's behavior very badly. I, I'm, it, none of it appeals to me. I, I don't want to tell people they're going to die. I'd rather tell people they're going to live. That doesn't mean I'm a better person. It means I'm a different person. So I don't understand it, but I've seen it, how intoxicating it is, that kind of power. And then you put sex into that. Good heavens, all these people get to be missionaries and tell people what they should, that they're, not only are they going to die, they're going to die because of some sexual act. Right. And then you take that to the third world, you take that to Africa, and now the whole thing is just, you see what I mean? <laughs> A disaster. Yes, because yes. all these things are locking in, and, and, and they all, none of them lead to life, justice, health, prosperity, it's all fear. It's a, yeah. It's the, all these darkest things about the human psyche are wrapped up in this uh, um, conundrum that it, that is a disease and is a lot of other things. And um, this exactly. is out, this is out the rabbit hole. KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson speaking with Celia Farber. We're talking about her book, Serious Adverse Events: An Uncensored History of AIDS, and that is published by Melville House. And uh, so. Yeah. Okay. That the uncensored history of AIDS. So there are these. Uh, I, I picked up about four main topics in your book that were things that are censored more or less in the mainstream media. And we just talked about you know the notion that you could question that HIV causes AIDS. Um, another one, and this was I remember this in the 80s, and we were being told everywhere that AIDS was going to start being spread very effectively by heterosexual activity and that never manifested could, could you talk a little bit about how that notion got out there and what the reality is as you see it yeah um, heterosexual AIDS was pushed primarily by one organization and I dare say one woman the organization is Amfar and the woman is Matilda Krim the head of Amfar um, uh, it, it um, it was it, it exploded in the national consciousness after a Life magazine cover story with huge uh, letters that said, no, "Now no one is safe from AIDS." I'm pretty sure that was it. So it, it came out in the and then Time, Newsweek, they all followed suit, and it it it, it happened in the media. It didn't happen epidemiologically. What they had epidemiologically was AIDS, as we know, began in um, uh, severely immune-suppressed for a variety of reasons. 
It's not even not even accurate to say that it began in gay men. Uh, uh, it began in uh, populations who were they were they were severe drug users. Most of them happened to also be gay men. Um, a few of them were actually. I'm talking about the earliest, the San Francisco cases, and there's a book that's been written just about this, where you can really see that uh, you know. I believe that disease occurs because of uh, complex disease conditions that have to do primarily with poverty and uh, social marginalization and um, exposure to all kinds of pathogens and toxins and extreme malnutrition and so forth. That, uh, and that's exactly where it cropped up in America, and that's where the disease we call AIDS manifests in Africa. Um, it is uh, okay. So I'm getting off the track here. <laughs> it started in these in uh, pockets of gay men and, and drug users, and, and in some cases both, in the major urban centers. And um, they had KS, uh, which was a specific disease that we now know. I would say almost 100% certain is caused by. Amyl nitrites, poppers, which is a drug that was used in the bathhouses to facilitate anal sex. Um, I mean, I could verify that, but we don't. We don't have enough time. I'm just going to put right. that out there, and we can maybe return to another time. Um, so, how did the notion get born that there was a disease that was spread by a virus that anybody who had sex with anybody could get? Well. Here's what I'm gonna, here's gonna, here's how I'm gonna get out of that one because it's, <laughs> I'm gonna urge your listeners to read a book called When AIDS Began by an author named Michelle Cochran, C-O-C-H-R-A-N-E. And it's a fascinating story about how the idea of, the idea of sexual spread, uh, was born. And it was a, um, a sort of interaction between, primarily, the primary culprit is the CDC. The CDC, in turn, feeding um, burgeoning AIDS awareness organizations such as MFAR, which then drop kick this thing into an, into the media. Uh, I can use a, an IV drug metaphor, mainlined it into the media, <laughs> and it just went boom. And there was it was just born whole. It was born. There were no there were no questions asked. And and if I was around at the time. I don't know how old you are, how, but I mean, people who were around at the time remember that the fear was so huge oh, yeah. that you, um, it, right? I mean, you 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 would be crazy to stand up and say it, it was that thing of like, well, you're that person then that's standing up in a in a theater or shouting fire, or you know, maybe it's the opposite of that metaphor. But it was so socially dangerous to say anything. It was. It's. This is a really fascinating case of just mass hysteria that nobody really knows where it came from, but nonetheless, it flew, and there was never any evidence. There was never any real reason. This was a disease that cropped up like diseases always do as a result of specific disease conditions, and 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 those who treated the earliest AIDS cases are very clear about this. They said, I mean, doctors who treated gay men, like Dr. Joe Sonneben, who was actually the founder of AMFAR, who has said for 25 years now, I treated those patients and there was no mystery as to why they got sick. Now, that was taken as homophobia. I call it epidemiology. What do people who get sick have in common? You couldn't ask that 
about AIDS in 1982, 83, 84, 85, verboten. Um, there were a lot of things happening, and we got a perfect storm kind of situation. There was political correctness. There was a post-Stonewall gay liberation culture that did not want to be seen in this light. And again, I just want to stress, it's, it's, it's not about blame. It's not about marginalization. It's about understanding cause and effect. And I think it was far more homophobic for the for the, the, the federal government and the culture and the nation to turn its back on gay men and just take this easy out, which was this, this, this unlikely viral theory, to sound nice and to sound inoffensive. I think it's very, inoffen- it's very offensive to not get to the bottom of a disease and why people are getting sick. Bottom line, tens of thousands of gay men could have been alive today if we had been a little more, a little less politically correct about being able to really discuss the causes of AIDS 20 years ago. Right. You were, if you were uh, saying anything about, oh, well, it, it has something to do with the gay bathhouse culture that, that's causing this disease in some people, then you, you would, oh, you, you don't, you're against gays, you hate gays, you, you, you're homophobic, and, and it's... What by going down that path and and not really following the statistics and the epidemiology, we didn't get a clear understanding of the disease, and therefore you know that caused harm to the gay communities. I mean, you could be completely. Oh, I have no problem with the gay bathhouse culture. I, I'm for gay rights and this and that. But if you say, oh well, something about that lifestyle may have something to do with this disease, you, like you said, verboten. Absolutely, yes. We're coming out of that now, I'm happy to say. And you know what? This thing was, this discussion that I picked up on 20 years ago, I was urged to do so by gay men. And to this day, it's gay men that are leading and pushing for this dialectic to happen. So that's another myth, the idea that this is a bunch of homophobic heterosexuals who want to just say that this is a gay disease. You know, there are all these kind of stigmatizing myths that they've stung us with over the years, and they're still doing it. The, the, uh, a faction of the, a faction of the left and other factions of the right and also factions of everybody in between. But I have to say the left has been the biggest culprit in this, uh, because they're just hopeless with anything to do with medicine and, and science, let's face it. Mm-hmm. They, they, they think it is political and it should, and they, they don't, they don't, it makes them uncomfortable to depoliticize science, which is exactly what needs to happen totally depoliticize it. So, in other words, if one, one plus one must equal two, or we're going to hell in a handbasket, and that's science. So, Duisberg, getting back to him, one, one of the most interesting things, his biographer, scientific biographer, uh, Harvey Bialy, has written a fantastic book about Duisberg. He said, listen, I'm not saying, I've, there's nothing in my book where I, I've never called him a, a brilliant scientist or a dangerous scientist or a, you know, all these extreme words that are used on both ends of the spectrum about Duisburg. Dr. Bialy said, I have called him, I have classified him, I, I have described him in my book as a classical scientist. And that's a very important distinction. A classical scientist is, is somebody who, who, as, as insanely um, obvious as this may sound, it's a scientist who actually believes that evidence must precede 
formation of theory. <laughs> I'm serious. We're in a totally postmodern mad era now where you don't have to prove anything. You just have to push the right emotional buttons in the culture. Yeah, I'm laughing, but it's really it's tragic. And uh, yeah, we're speaking with Celia Farber, and we're discussing her book, Serious Adverse Events and Uncensored History of AIDS. Celia, I know you've got to get going in about uh, three minutes here, so uh, I have so much more to ask you, and hopefully we can get you back on the show. I would love to come back. Okay, I'd love I'd to have love you to back. I'd love to anytime, Robert. Okay, so if we could maybe, <laughs> really quick, I know this might be impossible, to talk about the inflated uh, AIDS numbers for Africa because that's just so weird when you hear about how AIDS is so out of control in Africa and it, it doesn't make any sense if it's the same, supposedly the same virus that causes, causes the disease here. Yeah, well, I'm going to start with one statistic that I hope your listeners will find as stunning as I, as I do. Uh, the, the population on the continent of Africa, which we have been led to believe was decimated by a sexually transmitted virus and that, you know, you've read all the stories, right? Entire villages perishing, etc. The population on the whole, on the continent has grown since the mid-80s by 300 million people, which is roughly equivalent to the population of the United States. <laughs> okay, that's a pretty strong statistic. So, but I, I know we're just about okay, out of yeah, time well, here. I'll, I'll, I'll elaborate somewhat. Um, okay. it, 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 I'm, I am not saying that people are not dying in Africa. I'm not saying that people are not dying of diseases that could be said to be immune related to immune deficiency. However, if you go to Africa, I have I have crossed Africa, East, West, North, South, Central Africa. Uh, you 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 go into hospitals you go into villages you talk to doctors you talk to people and what you what what you find if you have a certain lens on where you're really saying you're pretending you're a martian you know i come from outer space i know nothing i've absorbed no propaganda just tell me what's going on what do you mean when you say aids and they will show you people dead people in coffins and they'll say oh it's terrible he died of aids and when you say what did he die of um, either they, either there is no answer, or they'll say, or they'll start telling you about a malaria death, and you say, why did you just tell me he died of AIDS if he had malaria and he died of malaria? And they'll say, oh well, we call everything AIDS here. Yeah, and some they were propagandized into that. Uh, yeah, the governments, uh, the governments in Africa are notoriously. Desperate and corrupt and very prone to saying whatever they had to say to get the uh, Western Pharma, etc. money rolling in. It makes perfect sense. When I went to Africa, uh, there was a, an African doctor in London who I spoke with before setting out, and he said, listen, you're, you're going to get nowhere. The per diem that these African doctors make at one of these AIDS conferences is equivalent to what they would make in a year at home. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's, I don't want to say it's different in Africa. It's not a gravy train. It's a survival train. Yeah. And uh, it's complicated. We had to ask ourselves, well, okay, if we're bursting this bubble and it's the only ticket to survival, is that a bad thing to do? And I, I think it just comes down to the simple formula that nothing good can come of a fallacy 
or 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 you know in other words if it if it isn't true it has to be thrown out no matter what people's good motivations may have been or what good may have come from it on the side on this side or on that side um you really just see uh, if anything if anything is wrong with a par- with especially a monster paradigm like this it kind of just becomes um uh, it becomes a kind of metastasized error and it compounds and it grows and it gets worse and worse and worse so really we have to, it's 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 horrifying but we have to throw out i think virtually all of our uh, beliefs and uh scientific dogmas about AIDS, HIV and AIDS and go back to the drawing board. But it's not back to square one because there has been a parallel track of people working really hard on all of these mysteries, anomalies, all this data that doesn't fit all these years. And that's who I've been it for whatever reason, that's who I wanted to talk to and I've been mining that. Yeah, and, you, and you've you know. done a great job, and uh, I think it's uh, science has to get back to real science, and journalism has to get back to real journalism, which you are certainly doing, and uh, you got to get going, right? I want to say, I want to say the I, I left out the most important thing uh, about Africa, which um, in case people are wondering, well, hang on a minute, what about what we read about Africa is that all these people have tested positive, and I just want to say that's. The, uh, that's the uh, that's the um, probably the single most shocking and explosive problem in this whole mess. Uh, in fact, the statistics that we get about Africa were extrapolated from a few prenatal clinics. That then uh, prenat- why prenatal clinics? Well, one of there are many things that can cause an HIV test. To, re- to cross-react, to, to test false positive. In other words, it, it comes out positive, but it isn't a true positive. One of them is pregnancy, especially repeated pregnancies. If a, person, a woman has been pregnant several times, it's very likely to test, test positive. Um, those results from those antenatal clinics were sent to Geneva and computer modeled to these, to these sort of disaster scenarios, none of which have panned out. But always we were talking about projections of HIV positive statistics. It was never actual cases. Um, so that's number one. The, the, the most important thing to look at in Africa is that test because the te- the, the, the definition of AIDS in Africa actually doesn't even require an HIV test in most countries, but when they do any HIV testing at all, they're using a test called an ELISA test, which in the Western world, most of the Western world, is considered so wildly re- reactive and unspecific that you would never, you'd be sued if you told a person they were positive based on uh, an, an ELISA test. Yeah, that... Or if you told someone they were HIV infected based on an ELISA test. So are you getting the picture? So we have a, we yeah. have either no technology, no no technology, or or very bad technology, combined with uh, racism, frankly, mm-hmm. combined with uh, industries who have a continent where they can kind of run wild and do anything they want. So I uh, the 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 picture that the West has been given about AIDS in Africa. I don't think it could be more flawed. I don't think it could be more wrong. Well, um, yeah, there's... They, 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 what they need is clean water, nutrition, basic health care, 
basic infrastructure rebuilt. You know, in, in, in post-apartheid South Africa, all of post-colonial Africa, it really is the simple, not very sexy story about the effects of poverty and malnutrition and filthy water on people. Yeah, and we could get into there was so much more in your book that was so tragic and so racist about some of the things done in Africa, but I know you've got to go, Celia. I, I do have to go. I'm the one who can't seem to stop talking, but I do have to go. <laughs> I'd love to come back, Robert. I okay, and we will do that. Uh, Celia Farber, Serious Adverse Events and Uncensored History of AIDS. That is the book. And uh, did you want to give out any contact information or anything else right now? or? I don't have a website, but I'm building one. Okay. But my book is available on Amazon. And uh, maybe the next time I come on your show, I'll have a, I'll have a web address. All right. Uh, great. We will be in touch with you and get that set up and have a uh, wonderful, I know you got some event to go to and have a wonderful time. And uh, it was great having you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Robert. To be continued. Okay. Take Bye -bye. care. Bye-bye.